Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Radian. Today, we are presenting you part two of our six-part series on multi-domain command and control, sponsored by Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Joining us today are some of Washington and the nation's top thinkers on the Pentagon's top priority, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System, otherwise uh, known as JADC2, uh, a program that the Pentagon leadership has said uh, is a priority for some time, but now appears to have gained added impetus uh, under this new administration uh, that has decided that the United States Indo-Pacific Command and its service components will be responsible for the requirements uh, for this command and control system that will uh, bring uh, and better integrate the United States as well as its allies uh, and partners uh, uh, globally, not just in the Pacific, uh, and that those requirements would be fed uh, into uh, or to the Pentagon's uh, Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer, Dr. Craig Bartell, who in turn will answer directly to the Secretary uh, and the Deputy uh, Secretary, uh, joining us to discuss whether we are on the right track and update us on uh, each of the service-specific plans uh, are Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner, who is now the director uh, of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Chris Doherty, a senior fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security, who is a former airborne infantryman with the legendary 75th Ranger Regiment, and Heather Penny, a former United States Air Force fighter pilot who is now a senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace uh, Studies. Everybody, thanks so very, very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure having you back on uh, to talk about what is, uh, without dispute, our favorite topic. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here. Vago, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have everybody uh, aboard. But before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. As I said, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual uh, meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS uh, and uh, Safran. Uh, everybody, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, you know, the Pentagon has long said, and we have done many, many programs over the last couple of years on JADC2. Each one of you have contributed in your own fashion to this discussion, if not altogether uh, sometimes. So I know that we're having a little bit of JADC2 stress disorder, uh, but it does appear that the administration uh, has a plan, uh, is putting the right people uh, in charge of putting requirements together. Each of the three services have their own plan, the advanced air, uh, uh, battle management uh, system for the Air Force, project overmatch uh, for the United States Navy, and project convergence uh, for uh, the United States Air Force, excuse me, for the United States Army. Um, and the idea was for everybody to be totally integrated in a battle management system. And now the question that's being asked, and I think that Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall was the, the lead in asking it is, what do we actually need to do and what do we not do, right? What needs to be connected and what not connected and the notion of connecting everything is, isn't really uh, the right uh, approach in order to try to do this. You know, each one of you have thought uh, deeply about the problem and the solution. Brian, why don't you uh, start us off, right? Is JANC2 finally the priority that it needs to be? Is it going to be del delivered on the scale and the speed of relevance? Uh, and, and finally, is this the right track overall uh, to have? And I'm going to go around the horn and get everybody's take on that before we get into a breakdown of service-specific themes. Go ahead, Brian. 
I think the most recent changes are uh, definitely a good thing because that universalist approach of trying to connect everything to everything else uh, was never going to work. Also, the idea of driving standards and requirements from the Pentagon is unlikely to yield the kind of uh, outcomes that we need in the next five or six years to really be relevant against China when it comes to Taiwan. So getting something done faster is going to require shifting a lot of the responsibility for requirements and leadership of JADC2 out to Indo-Pacific commands. I think this change is a really good one. I think we still need to make the change of having Indo-Pacific command proper be really leading the experimentation and integration effort because the service components are still going to be pursuing things that their services want rather than things that are going to be most beneficial for the, the warfighters in Indo-Pacific command as they deal with the challenge from China. Um, Heather, uh, what's what's your sense on this as as you look at it, right? Because depending on um, how you look at it, there are folks who maintain that the U.S. Air Force is a little bit ahead of the other services on this, obviously, and we'll get into the service-specific plans. But from a macro perspective, what's, what's your sense uh, in terms of the approach and whether it's a good one and the speed with which we will execute it? Well, Vago, as Brian said, it's really important that we understand that connecting everybody to everything is overly onerous and actually not necessary and not effective. I mean, when we look at the kind of information, the kind of data links, the quality of information that we're sharing, it's very specific for specific functions. So getting that kind of granularity is going to be important too. We do have to remember that the services organize, train, and equip, not the combatant commands. So I think that what Brian said about the Indo-PACOM being the major driver is an important piece of that. And baby steps. We have to look at this in an evolutionary manner. So I think the relationship between Indo-PACOM and the exercises and validating how we do that is really important because, and the final piece I'll say on this is that we've been calling it JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. We need to realize that kind of the first step is JADC, Joint All Domain Communication. So in some ways, this is just going back to net-centric warfare Uh, where we're able to connect and exploit the capabilities of those data links so that we can uh, close kill chains and we can share information. And I think the biggest hurdle is going to be the battle management piece and the command and control piece, because those are fundamentally doctrinal and they key into how each of the services operate. And so I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for how we negotiate sharing information that's a technical problem, and that's one that we have to solve. And so understanding the technologies and the data links and the data that we need to share to uh, make sure that we're closing kill chains at speed and making every service as effective with the equipment that it has and developing that over time is important. But the battle management piece and the command and control piece is going to be the challenge. Uh, and um, I want to get a little bit uh, deeper into the uh, integration pieces uh, in, in, a, in a moment. And I have to just say kudos to uh, the dean of the Mitchell Institute, uh, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, that has really been one of the fathers of JADC2 for a long time and proposing cloud combat as being the way to integrate all of these systems more effectively. And we can get, uh, get to that in a minute. Um, Chris, let me get, get your sense. Uh, on 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 whether or not you know just sort of on a strategic level we're on the right track. No, um, I mean I, you asked three questions um, and my answer to all of them is no. Um, so but you know my one concern is you know it's great that we're saying it's a priority but we said it was a priority in 2018. It was 
uh, you know, building a more resilient C4ISR infrastructure or architecture, whatever you want to call it, was the number one conventional force planning priority in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And, and we stood up a huge office under the leadership of, of uh, then of, under the leadership of Preston Dunlap to, to build out a JADC2 architecture. And we spent four years and it didn't really seem to go anywhere or do anything. And now we've got, you know, several new pieces of paper and a couple new offices uh, and I just don't see the urgency, you know, either inside the department or frankly inside the budget um, that would suggest that we're actually moving out in a meaningful direction. And that's contrasted against a lot of really good and interesting work going on at the experimental level, at the service level and in some of the combatant commands. So, there, you know, it's this good news, bad news story. And I, I think, the, you know, both Heather and Brian have alluded to this. If this is going to be successful, it's probably not going to be a top-down Pentagon-driven effort. It's probably going to be led by initiatives at the service and at the combatant command level. Um, things like the recent uh, Marine Task Force 61 slash two in UCOM, or you know, efforts that we've seen um, combining industry and service efforts to link up extant networks like the Army's IBCS and the Navy's co uh, cooperative engagement capability. Um, there was a recent demo that showed you could pass targeting tracks back and forth between those. That's where I think a lot of the good stuff is going to come. The downside is that still doesn't mean that we've really got a functional joint network. What it means is you've got stitched together service specific networks. Can that work? I think, yes, it can. But is that what we were aiming for in JADC2? And I would argue that no, it's not. And I, you know, the, the fact that we're just still arguing over this in 2022 suggests to me that we are so deeply behind um, that I, I don't know that we're going to pull it out in, in a relevant time frame. The upside, and I think we're seeing this you know, in the war in Ukraine, is that our adversaries aren't much better than we are at doing this sort of thing. So you know, we, we might not be doing what we're trying to do, we might not be doing what we were aiming for, but we're we're still actually pretty darn good at this relative to our potential competitors. You guys uh, want uh, to respond a little bit to Chris's uh, point, uh, Brian, and then Heather? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with Chris that you, you don't see the urgency uh, reflected in the Pentagon's budgets or, or in the organization of this effort. You know, we've sort of gone back and forth in terms of how it's going to be managed. I think pushing it out to the fleet or out to the Indo-Pacific Command makes sense to try to get that urgency. Uh, because when you talk to leaders there, they certainly understand the need for them to be able to create effects chains uh, to deal with the kind of those specific problems they have. Um, and, but I do dis disagree with Chris is that I think this was always going to be what JADC2 was going to be, was a stitched together combination of our existing networks, because we were never going to be able to wholesale replace the, the DOD's communication infrastructure with something new. Um, and I think, you know, to get to Heather's point, I think command and control is probably the more important element here. So we are going to have a stitched together collection of networks. And the important thing is, how do you do command and control of your communications? And how do you do command and control of forces in this environment where you don't have complete you know, interoperability between your communications? Heather, your, uh, your take? Well, Vago, I agree with both Brian and Chris. I mean, we're not seeing the uh, the prioritization and the speed that we really need to be able to see in the budgetary process, the resourcing process. I mean, the experimentation is good, but what these experiments, whether or not that's ABMS overmatch or convergence, are fundamentally bespoke kill chains that are really limited in scale. And so the problem is, how do you scale this for the Indo-Pacific in that kind of contested environment? And so I agree with Brian that command and control is 
the hardest problem that needs to get solved. But I would say the first step is how do we get that um, that network connectivity? Because that's what's going to be a that's what's going to be what synchronizes forces even when we're doing mission command and pushing those decisions out to the forward edge of the battle space. But you know, I think again, even though we're not seeing our adversaries necessarily achieving the same level or uh, speeding past us in terms of what we're attempting to do right now with JADC2, that's not necessarily their problem, right? If we go to the Indo-Pacific, we're playing an away game with a much smaller force. And so our imperative, the demand signal for us to be able to execute that is far greater than what we'll see our adversaries. So the pressure is really, and the onus is on us, is the imperative is for us in order to be able to make the most of the limited forces that we have. Uh, and and indeed, right, in its original iterations, or at least the way Dave Goldfein, uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, when, when this drive uh, sort of ginned up, right, um, was to make the case that with a smaller force, the only way we maximize the impact is by better integrating them. Uh, in in a more uh, seamless and resilient whole, uh, which which has been uh, the the challenge. I want to go around the horn now and and get each one of your service specific takes on where we are on um, overmatch uh, on ABMS as as well as where we are on uh, project convergence because each one of you guys have different challenges. Uh, uh, Brian, let me ask, and then how the OSD effort then. Right, and the COCOM effort then in turn changes what the service has been doing. The, the Navy pr has pretty much classified the entire effort, tends not to talk very much about it, uh, saying that there's too much sensitive to discuss. Others say that it m masks the, that the Navy still has a lot of work to do uh, on it. Again, I'm just reflecting the nature of the conversation. From your standpoint, where does the Navy stand? Is it on the right track? Because there are always glimmers that we may not be on necessarily the, the right track, even from what we can see on the other side of the curtain, on the public side of the curtain. Um, and, and how does the Navy's plan have to change to actually help Long Aquilino, uh, Paparo, Cruiser Wilsbach, et cetera, in the Pacific do their job better? Yeah, Vago, I think the, the Navy uh, has taken this very, obviously, uh, standalone approach and not working very closely with the other services, um, focused on the kill chains that they think are most important for what PAC fleet is trying to do. Uh, I think that makes sense to a degree because they are focused on what the operational commander needs in terms of specific capabilities. Uh, but I do think they're gonna have to start opening the aperture to bring in what other services might be able to provide and uh, to be able to have effective kill chains. Um, also, um, I think the Navy is going to have to uh, try to also expand the numbers of data links and communication uh, networks that they bring into this, because right now they're focused mostly on unique Navy networks, uh, because if they want to bring in like unmanned systems and bring in things from other domains, they, they necessarily are going to have to do something other than CEC and Link 16 and TTNT. Um, so the Navy's got work to do in terms of opening the aperture, but thus far, I think they've been effective in that they've been very focused on what the operational commander needs, and that's maybe more so than the other services have been able to do. Heather, uh, how does ABMS have to change um, to satisfy, right? I mean, for, first bring us up to speed on ABMS and where it is. Obviously, Secretary Kendall has made it a priority uh, with one throat to choke in terms of trying to execute it for the service. But then how does it have to change to do what it is uh, that uh, the secretary, the defense secretary and the deputy want it to do and what Long Aquilino needs it to do? 
You know, look, Vago, I think that the services having their individual approaches is actually probably moving us in the right direction. Yes, it's not joint all domain like what we're ideally uh, envisioning for the final outcome. But we have to remember that in terms of the evolutionary process, which is the only thing that's going to make us effective within this decade and the future decade, is the first step is the services need to be able to knit together their own information and be able to create uh, kill chains across a heterogeneous platforms and heterogeneous data links within their own service. And the reason why that's important is because that's what they have control, that's what they have command over during the course of operations. And then the question is, how do we share that information with other services so that they can be effective in their own operations? So I'm not convinced that, that having these separate efforts is necessarily bad so long as we begin to bring them together, which is one of the reasons why I like the Army's uh, calling their effort convergence, as long as we bring them together so that over time we're sharing information so that we can fill the gaps in the mission threads, fill the gaps in the kill chains, whether or not that's because literally those gaps, they, they just don't exist within the organic capability of that service or because they've been taken away be, uh, through conflict. So I think that's the right step. And the, I believe the Air Force is working in the right direction. They are actually uh, pretty closely communicating with the Navy. So they're working to, br to bring their efforts uh, closer together with the Navy. Uh, and so I'm hearing winning communications from the Air Force in that uh, direction. And they're also looking to see what can they uh, what can they do with the Army to be able to bring in some of the capabilities that the Army has for the future. Um, I would uh, uh, say that uh, uh, Lieutenant General Q High Note, uh, Professor High Note, uh, as he's uh, also known, um, who is uh, the chief of Air Force Futures, uh, has been very complimentary about what each of the services has been doing and brings uh, to the table throughout this process. So even if there's sometimes uh, acrimony, he's certainly been a very, very good diplomat on that uh, front. Um, Chris, Project Convergence um, is, is something that has been a priority for the Army leadership. And one of the great things the Army does is when it says it's a priority, people actually have a tendency of doing it. Um, the, the question always has been the transition of the experimentation, right? We're now in what's called PC-22. There have been a whole series of very thoughtful work being done by the Army Futures Command, uh, as well as uh, other parts of the service. And I asked Undersecretary Gabe Camarillo uh, about this at AUSA, where at what point do these actually transition to become something? Give us an update on where Project Convergence is now and how Project Convergence needs to change as a, as a result of the new OSD requirement? I mean, I think the Army was lucky in some ways as this whole endeavor got underway um, because it was already working on a network that, was, that would enable it to do some of these things. And this was originally the Integrated um, Air Defense Battle Management Command and Control System, or IBCS, which they've now morphed into a more um, broad-based you know, Integrated Battle Management Command and Control System, or IBCS. Same, same acronym, but different function. Um, so they've got a, an extant program that was moving in a direction that would enable them to do things like pass targeting data between dissimilar systems inside the Army. And they've shown through experimentation, you can do this in, in collaboration with Navy networks. Uh, you know, I think there's also experimentation going on with um, the Air Force is passing tra targeting tracks back and forth there. Um, so the question is then, how, how do you take this from these cool experiments that you've been doing out in the field 
and then translate that into you know a, a consistent program of record effort to build this into a, a, a joint um, into it what could be a part of a joint network. And now I agree with Heather and Brian that this was always kind of going to how things were going to end up being stitched together. But the difficulty with stitching things together is different services have different standards. So if we can all kind of agree that the hardest challenge that we face as a joint force is closing large numbers of kill chains against mobile targets in really highly contested environments. That's where you're contested in space, cyberspace, EM spectrum, and all the physical domains, right? So, you know, we're thinking about going against Chinese high-end surface combatants in Taiwan Strait scenario, or large numbers of Russian armored forces in a, in a kind of Baltic type scenario. These are the things that really stress our ability to do joint C4 ISR. And there are different standards and different protocols across all the services. Even if we can have the technical ability to pass this data back and forth, which I think we're moving toward with things like, you know, Project Convergence, um, which demoed that, that at least it's technically feasible. Um, I don't know that we've got the agreement and, and the, the processes in place to actually execute that when the time comes to really do it. And here, you know, here's one example of that. And I think we can, we can take that example and expand it. Um, but the one example I can think of is the different standards for targeting tracks between the different services. The Air Force has a very, very high standard for targeting tracks um, against mobile targets. And, and that standard is not shared across the joint force. The other services do not have that standard of, of you know, very high level, very high fidelity, very tightly mensurated cradle to grave track for a, mo for a moving target. But the Air Force does. Now, will they, will they be able to agree on on who passes what kind of targeting tracks and what they're willing to take a shot on with potentially a very scarce munition um, or, or, you know, like these are the kinds of things that like get beyond this technical ability. And that's where I think we're really gonna, we're, we're gonna see problems because it's where we've seen problems so far. Um, that's where a lot of these disagreements is who owns what toward what standard and, and who's, who, you know, who gets to define the rules of the road as we're passing this data back and forth between service-led efforts. And I'll say, you know, in all the wargaming and modeling and simulation that we've done on this, on this topic, if you can't effectively, you can't just have service stovepipe efforts, it won't work because we don't, you know, to, to Heather and Brian's point, we don't have enough service-specific forces in any given theater when the war kicks off in order for them to fight their own fight and, and not integrate into a joint effort that, that just won't work. And I've, we've, I've seen it gamed, I've seen it modeled, and the results are always, always unsatisfactory. So there's going to have to be some way of passing targeting tracks between, you know, Air Force aircraft, Space Force, you know, birds up, uh, you know, up in the, 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 up in space, Navy surface combatants, Navy aircraft, Army ground forces, Marine Corps littoral regiments, all those things are going to be able to have to pass information back and forth between each other. And in, in, unless and until we can do that, none of this is really going to matter. We're going to have a lot of really cool abilities at a service level, but they're not going to stitch together into something that is greater than the sum of its constituent parts. And that's, that's what I'm concerned about. And that's where I just simply don't see the urgency to do that. The trick is how do we integrate this and how do we do it quickly and efficiently? Um, Heather, I'm going to uh, cite your pixie dust uh, paper on AI, which I think is still uh, a blue ribbon work, right? Uh, this tendency of thinking there's magic dust we can sprinkle on problems, complicated problems, and somehow solve them, uh, as opposed to bringing everybody together from the very beginning to solve it. We're, we're trying to do that now. What are the approaches to quickly and efficiently doing this? Because right, Dave Deptula would argue that if you go to a cloud combat format, it doesn't matter what your thing is, you can connect it more easily. 
as long as you can access this resilient cloud uh, that's global. You know, ultimately, that's one way of doing it. As you know, you, you could do it a little bit with edge, but what what are some of the leading edge uh, thinking on this to try to get us to where we need to be and to do it at the speed of relevance? Bago, Chris brought up a really good point about standards. The different services have different standards. And what we need to do first is disentangle what we mean by standards, right? If you talk to a technologist, when they talk about standards, it's a very specific technical thing regarding the message set, right, and how the zeros and ones come across. When you talk to a warfighter about standards, they're actually talking about the quality of the data that they need, right? And so the reason why, in Chris's example, the Air Force demands um, high update rates, extreme precision, is because the nature of their targets, whether or not that's an airborne target or the uh, ground-moving target, uh, that ha- the the target actually drives information requirements for the weapon. When you think about an air-to-air target, right, you might have a fighter aircraft moving at uh, near the speed of sound that's highly maneuverable. So you, you have to have that precision to be able to get to guide the weapon to, the, to that aircraft, right? Uh, and similar with a ground-moving target. So we need to understand the warfighter standards for data are driven by the target requirements and by the information requirements of the weapon to get to that, to get, to get that target, whether or not that weapon is kinetic or non-kinetic, right? So I think that's an important piece. I, again, it's a technical challenge for then how do we get the technical standards to begin to stitch together the force? And I would actually argue as we begin to go through these mission threads and decompose them with the existing capabilities that we have, that not everything needs to connect to everybody. And that begins to scale the problem down for us regarding what's appropriate to, you know, what needs to share and what do we need to be able to integrate real time. I think the biggest problem is going to be the battle management piece of synchronizing across the joint force and the command and control piece. Because when we begin to pass targets or pass targeting data, that then gets into the problem of force allocation, like who owns what? Who controls what? And you could get to the absurd example of a B-21 going in bad guy land, and then suddenly you have uh, a sergeant on the ground decide that something on the other other side of the hill needs to, to die, and he hits a pickle button, and the B-21 bomb bay opens up, and that is not what their original target was. So right. that's kind of the absurd uh, problem that we need to think about when we begin to look at this joint all domain command and control is how is not simply just how do we knit together these these kill chains and share information at the speed of relevance um, and across the entire force so that we can really be resilient in this conflicted environment or uh, contested environment but it's really also how do we synchronize actual forces in the battle space how do we assign them targets and how do we do that resiliency? And that gets to the problem that Chris is talking about is the need to integrate across the services so we can maximize our joint firepower. Um, and, and what you're talking about, Heather, is also right raises a whole bunch of other issues about doctrine, training, um, how we have to think differently about cognition, because obviously each of these uh, new command and control systems and battle management systems are going to automatically, more automatically than ever before, queue up decisions for you as as sort of yes no decisions uh, as opposed to 
um, you know, when you're fat fingering it and you have four phones to your head, you could be like, wait a minute, are you sure, Heather? Like, are you sure that well, are you Bago, sure element me, disappears, right? Yeah. And let, let me just add this piece too, is that when we talk about joint all domain command and control, we need to remember that the services have their own unique uh, command and control doctrine. Those paradigms are driven by the inherent qualities of their domain and the attributes of their equipment. So the way the army conceives of their operations and controls their operations, very different than how the Navy does and very different from how the Air Force does and is very different from how the Space Force does because each of our paradigms exploit the inherent attributes of our domain and our equipment. So when we begin to smash all that together, we need to be very careful that we don't sub-optimize uh, how we operate just because we want to be connected. Chris, your your take on how to do this and and do it both well and more quickly. I think the, the way to do this well and quickly is to not focus on build, building one overarching joint architecture. Uh, I think that's been proven to be a, a null set or at least a, a bridge too far. I think what we should focus on instead is stitching together the extant architectures using um, what we called in a, in a paper I wrote a couple of years ago, you know, sort of universal waveform and data translators. Um, and there's efforts afoot to do this that, you know, those sound very, um, very, you know, far off in the future, but, you know, DARPA's stitches program has shown an ability and there are other sort of nascent programs shown an ability to translate dissimilar waveforms and dissimilar types of data um, across, you know, intermediary transceivers. Essentially, you build a box that takes in one kind of data and waveform and spits it out right. the other side. Um, and, and so you can build these boxes into a, a variety of platforms that'll, that can start to build out uh, what we would call a mesh network, right? So no, no longer am I shooting data um, down one solitary pipe through one, for, through one series of connections um, down to, you know, from an operational commander down to a tactical executor. Um, but now that data can bounce around in multiple different directions. It makes it much more difficult for an adversary to jam or to intercept or to, to, to physically destroy the networks upon which our kill chains rely. So that's where you move from, you know, what we call kill chains toward kill webs. Um, and technically, that's that's feasible. We can do that. Um, I would argue we should be moving out in that direction with all deliberate haste. I don't think we are. I, I think again, we got a lot of cool experiments, but I don't see it. I don't see that vision translating into the budget yet, um, and it really ought to be. But I think I'd like to expand on what you and Heather both said because the, the technical ability to pass data doesn't matter if we don't have the the human organizational and training aspects of this nailed down. And to use Heather's example of the B-21, you know, pickling a, a tactical target for a ground operator, um, you know, that's a great example of, of a problem that we have looked at in our wargaming and our modeling and simulation. And that is, you know, how do we decouple command control and communications from each other? So if they're, you know, currently the way we deal with it technically and doctrinally is that C3, Command control communications, those things are all tightly coupled conceptually. Um, our command and control is passed through a communications network, and it's all sort of very hierarchical, very centralized, um, which is fine if you're doing very service-specific command and control execution um, of an operation. But once you start to move to these highly um, distributed, high-tempo joint operations in contested environments, that paradigm starts to work much, much less effectively. Um, and what we see is you start losing chunks of your kill chain um, as an adversary hits a part of it and there's no secondary piece to fill that in. 
or you have to have a you have to have a very tightly orchestrated joint operation between air and maritime forces and maybe even potentially including you know marine ground forces or army ground forces and it's it's almost impossible to execute that without some way of tightly passing information back and forth between those those different entities but it's not just the information passing it's the, have we trained together have we operated together do we have a similar command control paradigm because what to what heather said the army is all of you know in theory at least anyway all about mission command and devolving you know command authority the lowest echelon possible and devolving control of forces even lower the air force has a very very different way of thinking about this centralized control decentralized execution that those two things aren't the same and so to, to heather's point she might see uh, you know a, a sergeant on the ground being able to task an aircraft as anathema but from a ground perspective i see that as potentially a really really good thing um and and that that disconnect right there that's that's the thing that JADC2 at a non-technical level has to solve. How do we determine who has tactical control over really critical assets when it matters? And something that we worked toward a lot in our paper on this, um, on, on information and command was, how do we create new organizational structures, new training paradigms, and new you know, command and control paradigms at a joint level that can actually work through that that problem of who gets to decide where can an air force you know aircraft to reverse it can an air force aircraft determine where a prison should be fired in order to suppress an enemy and oh, i, I uh, would yeah. say yes we can you can you just re re every time you're touching the microphone it sounds like thunder so just oh, okay. say say the last two start from wherever you touch the microphone twice because it goes and oh, we can't sorry, hear you no i was touching it um yeah so okay. um you know, to expand on what Heather said, she mentioned the, the potential problem that would occur if a sergeant, you know, on the ground could task a B-21 to drop a weapon. From a ground force perspective, however, I would see that as a good thing. But the question is, is it under what circumstances and, and why? And determining that what and why is really the crux of where we need to be going with JADC2 outside of the technical aspect of it which is who gets to control what and under what conditions. And I would flip it on its head. It's not just about ground forces controlling air forces. You could certainly see a situation in which air forces were controlling at a tactical level, the usage of army ground fires in order to suppress enemy surface to air missile systems. But how and under what conditions and what are the, 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 the paradigms and control processes that, that allow for that to happen? That I think is not just as important. I think it's more important than the technical ability to pass data back and forth. We, we, we can, we've done enough experiments to show that that's technologically feasible. Where I get concerned when I look at these joint war fights is, do we have the right sets of authorities and processes in place in order to enable those tactical echelon forces to make decisions based on control from a, a non-service asset? Will that, will that prism battery commander, will she fire on a track from an Air Force F-35? Um, and that, that to me is where we need to go. And that's where the thinking needs to be. And I, I think we've been so focused on the technological aspect of it that we haven't sufficiently thought through the rest of the, the training doctrine aspects of it. And, and to me, that's where the rubber's gonna meet the road. 
in, in, indeed. And that's where, right, the, you know, I mean, I'm going back to the deep battle uh, debates and some of those deep battle debates that are continuing today, right, in terms of uh, the capabilities the army is building, uh, which then start to get into the terrain of the sort of things that, for example, the United States Air Force does when it comes to precision strike uh, over over long distances and how to use hypersonics and where they fit into an overall order of battle. Um, Brian? Exactly. I think where I'd say is what we did before was deconfliction. We said, this is your fight, this is our fight, and we right. just won't get in each other's way. And that was sufficient to some degree for air land battle as it was devised in the 1980s. But if you look at where we think we need to go operationally, to where we want to call it joint all domain operations, whatever you want to call it, but this tighter integration of forces across service and domain boundaries that goes beyond deconfliction, it has to go beyond just passing information at a technological perspective and has to get into real, no kidding, joint doctrine. Like no joint way. doctrine that actually has teeth to it, that actually says, this is how we're gonna operate as a joint force. Because way too often our joint doctrine is just sort of a, a, a document that lives on a server somewhere and that nobody ever reads and nobody ever really cares about. But if you want to operate truly jointly in an integrated fashion, you've got to figure that stuff out. Chris makes many good points. At the same time, there's precedent for how we might be able to do some of this. For example, there's no reason why we shouldn't have uh, the Army's hypersonic long-range precision strike allocated over to the JFAC to be under his control and his command so that it's fully integrated into that long-range operation uh, across the theater. This is very similar to how we allocate fighters over to the army for close air support. So there are precedents that we can that we can exploit that we can use. And that's not to say that new things aren't going to have to be uh, conceived of and trained to. But uh, we're not we don't have to start at zero. We don't have to reinvent the whole wheel. My frustration here, Vago, is that we put joint resilience C4ISR into the force planning priorities, the very top in 2018 for the National Defense Strategy. It's four years later and we still don't seem to have much. And everybody seems to be enthused about the fact that we've created these new offices, whether it's the new cross-functional team or it's this new office inside uh, OSD or uh, RNE. And yet, I, or this, you know, the, the effort to in, include the combatant commands and particularly Indo-Pacific Command in this whole effort, I still don't get a sense that there's actual urgency behind this. And instead what we're doing is creating new offices and new bureaucratic layers Who is the one person who's responsible for delivering an actual joint capability to the Secretary of Defense and to the department more more broadly? And then where is the actual line item in the budget that says this is what we're doing and here we're dedicating 10, 15, 20 billion dollars to this effort because that's how important it is. And so instead, what we've left ourselves with is this massive glass jaw that we know that the Chinese and Russians are aiming for in warfare because they write about it extensively. And we just don't seem to have any urgency of fixing that glass jaw and actually making it resilient the way that we've been talking about for four years. Brian, you've been uh, very patient, uh, as uh, we've heard from uh, Heather and and Chris and a lot of uh, very, very thoughtful points in terms of how to be thinking about the architecture, how to integrate this uh, in the future. And I couldn't agree more with with, uh, Chris's sort of clarion call, right? I mean, he was involved in this in 2018. Uh, when this requirement was uh, was being uh, established, and you know, to to a large degree, we're still doing what we do because we do it. Uh, from from your standpoint, what's the key to integrating it? And, and any other comment you want to make as we as we wrap this program up? Yeah, Bago, it's easy to be patient when you're listening to a fantastic discussion like that. I think uh, Chris and uh, Heather made uh, fantastic points. I agree with everything they said. 
Um, I think to, to kind of step back, um, you know, some of what we're trying, we need to do is shift the focus of this over to the combatant commander to Chris's point. We've got to have somebody who's primarily responsible for uh, de designing and, and actually delivering some kind of joint capability to the Secretary of Defense. And, and because the joint uh, force is only integrated out of the combatant command level, that's really the only place you're going to get it. So we can complain about the services all operating within their stovepipes, but fundamentally, Goldwater Nichols has created this system where only the combatant commanders are integrating the joint force. So let's shift the effort out to there. And that's something that's happening, albeit slowly uh, right now, but that's really who needs to be empowered to bring JADC2 to fruition, um, focused on the problems that the operational commander actually has. You know, to, to Heather and Chris's points, we're not gonna be able to knit together the entire force. We're not gonna build a new command and control architecture. Um, so we need to stitch together the kill chains that are necessary for, um, for Admiral Aquilino, Admiral Paparo, et cetera, to be able to uh, deal with the operational problems and the challenges they have that they anticipate against China when it comes to uh, scenarios like an invasion of Taiwan or a blockade or a quarantine or multiple other uh, situations they may find themselves in. Um, and then in terms of how do you actually make that happen? Um, I think that that's where you get the services having to realign their experimentation efforts towards what the combat commander wants. Um, and I think there's a lot of good work happening within the services, but yeah, as we've noted, um, in a lot of ways, it's it's designed to address service equities. It's not really designed to address the, the problems that the operational commander has. Um, and but there's uh, you know there's some tools that they could use to try to work through that. I think. If by focusing on, on operational problems Aquilino has, then I think you could come up with a way to start figuring out how do I allocate um, uh, authorities? How do I make it so that I can gracefully degrade to mission command by pushing uh, decision support tools down to the field commanders who are likely to own forces and be able to actually communicate them with, with them in a contested environment? And then what are the authorities that need to be passed down? Because all these things can really be only developed in context of some anticipated situation. You can't you know, kind of come up with a universal way for authorities to be delegated or for mission command to be, to be delegated. You have to think about it in a context. And so I think that Indo-Pacific context gives you a way to really be a forcing function so that you can try to address some of the, the shortfalls that, that Chris and uh, Heather have so expertly articulated. Um, and you know, when it comes to actually networking the force together, I mean, I agree with them that, that command and control is the biggest challenge here. And it's all about authorities and it's all about um, empowering mission command through decision support. But you do need to be able to improve the ability of the force to communicate with each other. Um, and uh, I agree with Chris that you know, there's some issues there with regard to the format of data that's used by the different services. Um, and there's a couple of ways that we're addressing that. So one is at the, at the physical layer of the radio, where there are the you know, software-defined radios that can use multiple waveforms. There are new generations of software reprogrammable radios that will allow you to actually change the waveform in mid-operation. Mid um, but those are you know, going to come later. That's, that's a ways off. So we have to think about you know, trying to put more radios um, onto systems that can be able to communicate with those of the other services systems. That means gateways are probably gonna still be necessary like Bacon uh, or like the lightning pod. Um, we still have to think about maybe putting additional radios onto multi-mission man platforms, which allow them to be able to communicate. 5G is an opportunity space that we're looking at that I know OSD is also looking at is a way to provide those additional radios. So you've got at least some backup communication system that can communicate with multiple other you know, services players. 
But then if you go up one layer from the physical layer, you've also got the data layer and that's where stitches and capabilities like that come into play where you can translate between message formats. And that gets to something Heather described, which is um, the fact that you know Air Force, um, or, and then Chris described where you've got different um, requirements for the fidelity of information or the precision of information depending on the operation you're conducting. And stitches can help with that by translating uh, the information from one message format into what's needed for another message format. Um, so there's tools that we can use at that physical layer and that data layer to try to get that interoperability, but it really needs to be driven by somebody saying what the context is and what the kill chains are that are most necessary to support the operational commander's needs. Because if you don't have that, it's going to be too hard to boil the ocean and try to fix this problem universally. Um, and that gets to Heather's point about we're just generating a lot of um, you know, task forces and organizations. I think Chris mentioned this as well. So refocusing on the command commander is really key here, uh, Vago. So that would be my bottom line. Brian, thanks very much. Heather and Chris, thank you. Thank you all for joining us. It was absolutely a terrific conversation uh, and would love to have you guys back on again as part of this series and beyond uh, to talk about a very important issue because ultimately um, our adversaries know what our weaknesses are, as Chris so uh, elegantly uh, put it. Uh, and we need to... Uh, address some of these shortcomings, especially at a time when our demand for communication and connectivity and command and control uh, in a contested environment uh, are increasing, you know, as you said, Brian, right, I mean, extending to unmanned systems, uh, not just uh, to, to manned platforms. Um, thanks. Uh, and, and with a whole bunch of new capabilities that are going to be dawning as well, whether it's hypersonic, uh, conventional, long-range ballistic missiles, uh, or air breathing uh, systems as well. Uh, and also trying to coordinate these fires with allies and partners, which is a, another dimension of complexity. Guys, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again soon.